Welcome back to the Wild Truth Chase podcast. My name is Nicholas Schaefer, and I'm your host for today. For all of those avid listeners who are on the edges of their seats every weekend waiting for another Wild Truth Chase episode to drop, I once again have to make an apology. The past two weekends, I got sick on Friday afternoon and was unwell for most of the weekend. The episode today was actually mostly written two weeks ago. Thankfully, the material is absolutely timeless, or in any case, the book that we're going to talk about was written in 2011, so hearing about it a few weeks later shouldn't hurt. So indeed, today's episode is another book review episode, and I still have a few books in the queue that I'd like to talk about. So if all goes to plan, we should be discussing another few books over the coming weeks. The author of our book today is James Glick. He's a noted science writer who has written books on chaos, Richard Feynman, and Isaac Newton, among other subjects. So there's clearly a physics theme in his work. The subject of today's book, perhaps not surprisingly to regular listeners of the Wild Truth Chase podcast, is information theory. I have read several technical books on information theory recently, or books that include discussion of information theory with other topics, so I wanted to get some more historical context, and this book fit the bill nicely. The title of the book is The Information, and the subtitle is A History, A Theory, A Flood. And the subtitle lays out the structure of the book, which is broken into three parts. Like our last book on Bayesian statistics, the events described in this book take place over the course of more than 200 years, starting in 1730 and going through to the present day. Understandably, authors like to discuss their subject in the context of major historical events, and some of the events discussed in this book include Europeans traveling to Africa in the 1700s, the building of the first mechanical computers by Charles Babbage and Ada Lovelace, and the elucidations of the genetic code that unfolded throughout the 1900s. We have discussed information theory previously on the podcast, so I won't repeat everything that we've learned on previous episodes, but it might be useful to recall that the most common measure of information is the bit. A bit is how much information you need to decide between two equally plausible alternatives. So if you're at a fork in the road and you have no idea which way to go, which is to say that from your point of view, there's a 50% chance that right is the correct direction and a 50% chance that left is the correct direction. And then someone sends you a message telling you with certainty that you should go right, for example, then that message has conveyed to you exactly one bit of information. In other words, information is a measure of the reduction of uncertainty on receipt of a message. Now, talk of bits is everywhere, but being able to quantify information was a hard-won victory, and the first part of this book covers the prehistory of information theory before formal notions existed. As I mentioned, the book proceeds in three stages, and stage one is called a history, and the author starts with a description of drum languages. Drums were used to send messages across long distances going back centuries before any kind of modern means of conveying messages quickly across long distances were devised. 
These techniques were devised and used in Africa as a means of long-distance communication by speaking through drumming patterns. Using these techniques, because drums can be heard very far away, messages can be conveyed very long distances very quickly. At first glance, this may seem totally impossible because drums cannot make as many different kinds of sounds as a human voice. What you will notice, however, is that when you translate how messages are expressed using drums into human language, they contain an abundance of seemingly extraneous elaborations and flourishes. While at first this might seem wasteful, once you combine this information with your initial incredulity about whether or not speaking through drums could be done at all, it turns out to be a masterstroke of genius that presages developments in formal information theory and communication technology by centuries. With a drum, each word contains less information than a spoken word, because inevitably, many words in spoken language will map to the same sound or very nearly the same sound when played on a drum. So if you tried to express yourself as concisely as you would with spoken language and translated this directly into drum beats, the message would be hopelessly ambiguous. If, however, you add a whole bunch of seemingly unnecessary context, then all of this extra information helps to disambiguate the message when it's translated into drum beats. An even earlier example of the informal use of information theory is the development of writing. After discussing drum language, the author then skips back even further in history to discuss developments of writing and its formalization in the form of dictionaries. Reading history often surprises me. This is yet another example where my intuitions failed me when trying to guess how things must have developed over time. The author notes that when writing was still not very widespread, it wasn't obvious that there should be one right way to spell a word. People spelled words according to only a very loose sense of how the spoken word should be translated into written characters, and would even spell the same word many different ways within the same passage of writing. These days, we take dictionaries for granted, but those too were hard won by our ancestors. After the discussion of writing, there's an extended discussion of the development of early mechanical computers. Here again, we encounter a situation that beggars my intuition, but it's perhaps obvious in hindsight. People needed computing, which is to say, calculation or the manipulation of numbers, long before electronic computers existed. The solution was, of course, to have people perform computations manually. The current book discusses at some length the surprisingly important role that books of logarithms played in facilitating calculations by human computers. Charles Babbage was perhaps one of the first people to take seriously the idea that humans would not have to calculate by hand forever. In the 1800s, he started devising and then attempting to build mechanical computers that could perform these calculations. While obvious in hindsight, these developments puzzled many contemporaries of Babbage. Babbage had a reputation of being somewhat of a grump, and when someone asked him, quote, if you put in the machine wrong figures, will the right answers come out, close quote, he wrote in response, quote, I am not able rightly to apprehend the kind of confusion of ideas that could provoke such a question, close quote. It's at this point in the story that a truly remarkable character enters, Ada Lovelace, born Augusta Ada Byron, who is sometimes said to be the first computer programmer, although nothing like electronic computers that we have today existed during her lifetime. She was apparently inspired to think about programming machines by watching the workings of a programmable loom, 
that could be made to weave different patterns in cloth through the use of patterns input into pasteboard cards. Here again, presaging by many years the use of punch cards to program later electronic computers. She was extremely sharp and she knew it, referring to her own, quote, immense reasoning faculties, close quote, in her writing. She ended up working with Babbage on his analytical engine, which was designed to surpass the capabilities of his previous difference engine, but the analytical engine never came into being due to technical problems and practical difficulties, including problems raising money, something to which modern-day academics could certainly relate. From the development of early computers, the author then turns to further developments in long-distance communication. One idea comes into sharp focus here, which we will take a minute to examine. Imagine that you are on a tall tower, and you are meant to communicate with someone who is far away on another tall tower. Let's assume that you don't have any drums, and you're too far away to be heard by the other person even when yelling, so that sound is not an option for communicating. How would you communicate a message to them? Hopefully it's clear that the answer to this question depends a lot on who that other person is and your prior relationship with them. If they are, say, someone who you don't even share language with, then your options will be very limited. If, on the other hand, you have met up with the person prior to having been separated and you each carry a copy of a code book that allows you to translate many simple signals into complex messages, then that would be a very different picture. For example, if I hold up one stick, then that means everything's fine. If I hold up two sticks, then that means that I've spotted the enemy and they're headed your way. That's a very dense encoding of messages indeed, and communication of such a message would not have been possible without both parties being in possession of the codebook. This part of the book covers telegraphs and related developments in detail. The first telegraphs were not at all like what you're probably imagining, however. The first telegraphs were indeed towers, like in our example, with various large mechanical signaling devices on top of the tower that were within eyeshot of the next tower. A network of these towers were built such that they formed a continuous signaling pathway across the entire countryside of France. It's hard for us to imagine now what it must have been like when it was not possible to efficiently send messages across very long distances. Even this seemingly primitive setup was evidently a revelation to the people living in France at the time. Nonetheless, and needless to say, these kinds of telegraphs were quickly displaced once it became possible to send electrical signals over wires, and here the book turns its attention to the development of Morse code and related message encoding systems. Having gone through the first part of the book, which covers the prehistory of information theory, the author then turns to the heart of the subject, which is the formal development of information theory itself. The main character in this part of the book is none other than Claude Shannon, and once again, this book just keeps on giving in terms of interesting historical tidbits. When Shannon was growing up in a small town in Michigan, telephonic technology was just coming online and electronic telegraphs were still in widespread use. Indeed, Shannon used Morse code to communicate as a child. Telephones were not yet ubiquitous, and not surprisingly, the more densely populated parts of the United States got telephone service first, while rural areas were left without phone service. So, what was the rural population to do? Well, it turns out that, for reasons completely unrelated to telephones, rural areas already had networks of wire running all over the place. Can you guess what those were? 
That's right, early telephone networks were formed by patching together barbed wire fences. Needless to say, these early telegraphic and telephonic communication systems were not secure or private. All the communication was practically public. So what could one do if you didn't want to just air your dirty laundry on the barbed wire telephone network? Remember our code books that we used to communicate between towers earlier? Code books are good for efficiently encoding information. Another aspect of communicating with code books that we did not emphasize just now is that not only would such a code book allow you to communicate with your compatriot more efficiently at long distances, but it would also preclude or at least inhibit eavesdropping by anyone who did not share your code book. It therefore became common practice for people using electronic telegraphs to use codes to both shorten their messages, thereby saving money, and to encrypt their messages, thereby ensuring privacy. This was the background against which Shannon was growing up in Michigan, so it's not surprising, perhaps, that he would have been thinking about information as he made his way through high school, then to the University of Michigan, and went off to MIT for graduate school. As was in the case in our last book, The Theory That Would Not Die, wartime serves as a backdrop for this part of the story. Apparently, Shannon used to meet regularly over lunch with Alan Turing, who often gets the title of the father of modern computing and a lion's share of the credit for cracking the Enigma code that gave the Allies the edge they needed to win World War II. Given his expertise, Shannon was also tasked with various jobs related to cryptoanalysis during the war, and it was in this context that he first drew a diagram that was almost the same as the diagram that would help him to clarify the meaning of information and lay out the foundations of information theory. We discussed this diagram or setup in a previous episode on information theory, so I won't discuss it in detail here. Shannon's idealized model for communication was a message source, an encoder, a source of noise, a decoder, and a receiver. Shannon had a reputation as a tinkerer, so even though he's perhaps best known for his highly formalized framework for understanding information, he spent most of his time on real-world examples and practical problems. For example, he tried to estimate the amount of information in the English language by creating progressively higher-order approximations to English language, starting with observed frequencies of letters, then pairs of letters, triplets, entire words, pairs of words, and so on. He sketched on a logarithmic scale various sources of information in an attempt to estimate their relative information context, from a single coin flip to the Library of Congress. Having described the invention of a formal information theory, the author then goes on to describe what he sees as many of the downstream consequences of the elucidation of the nature of information in what he describes as a flood of information. This is the information age, after all. The various forms and increasing amounts of information that we now encounter, post-Shannon, are myriad, with perhaps the biggest and most famous example being the internet. Much of the rest of the book goes over applications of Shannon's new information theory to physics and biology, and we may touch on these applications in other book reviews or in future episodes and seasons. Every reader might see things a little differently, but I think that the heroes of this book include, not surprisingly, Claude Shannon, but also Charles Babbage and Ada Lovelace. The villain is not clearly discernible. Perhaps one might say that, in the end, Information overload is the specter hanging over modern society. The big ideas conveyed in this book are that there's a historical trend wherein people had utilized intuitive notions of information prior to Shannon, and then the developments of Shannon, 
which were a genuine breakthrough in our understanding of information, yielded many technological breakthroughs that are causing the information landscape to continue to change rapidly even today. The other big idea that I see in this book is a scientific one, namely that a lot goes into sending messages efficiently, and many phenomena can be usefully viewed through the lens of sending and receiving messages. I think that this book is good for both scientists and history lovers, and certainly anyone who has an interest in both. Sticking for now to my scheme of rating books on a scale of 0 to 1, I'm going to give this book a score of 0.8. For me, the book gets knocked a few points because not everything in the book was closely tied to Claude Shannon's information theory, which is what I had expected going into the book. There are long asides regarding early writing systems and mechanical computers that, while interesting, seemed a little out of place. Most of these asides were entertaining and worth learning about, but I would have preferred a more focused treatment of the subject. Nonetheless, this is a wonderful book for anyone interested in a broad history of the use and understanding of information. Okie dokie, I think that'll be enough for this week. Thank you all for listening, and I'll see you very soon.